Greetings and hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Uh, For those of you who are just discovering this in the wilds of the internet, this show is all about the horror genre and the queer relationship to it and beyond. I'm excited to introduce our first guest. He is a true horror icon. He created the Final Destination franchise. He's a novelist, a director, a prolific screenwriter and producer. Welcome to the show today, Jeffrey Reddick. Hi, Michael. Glad I'm here to pop your cherry. (laughs) For those of you who may not know, uh, Jeffrey is the creator of the Final Destination series, as well as the writer of the recent Dead Awake. Uh, He has been working in this genre for quite some time and has created a lot of really wonderful things, and I'm excited to sit and talk to him today. I'm excited, too. So, uh, just leaping into it, the first question I want to ask every guest who comes to this show, mm-hmm. and you can interpret this however you want, is why horror? What is your relationship to it? What drew you to this right. this world? No, I mean, I started watching horror when I was really young, like younger than I should have been, probably watching like 12, or even younger. And I think what drew me to it originally was just because it was watching something that was forbidden. Like, everybody's like, how can you watch that stuff? It's so disgusting. And so it was kind of being rebellious. Um, but me and my friends got really into Fangoria and like the makeup behind it. So it wasn't, it was like research for us really, um, and fun for us. And we'd make each other up bloody. And, um, so for when we were young, it was being rebellious and fun. And then when I hit about 14 and I saw Nightmare on Elm Street, which I is my favorite movie of all time, like then I started realizing how deep and great and thematically rich horror films were. Um, and that's when I fell in love with them. And, you know, I think one of the things that I, have always been drawn to is you know horror usually is the one genre where back in my day growing up in the you know the 80s and the 90s you know the uh the geek kind of ended up being the hero at the end or the girl who you know the final girl wasn't the hot cheerleader she was like the smart nerdy girl that didn't quite fit in and so i think that you know just as a as a, a gay person and a person of color i could relate to that um you know and it's funny how i think all pretty much everybody like if you know, no offense to any other Final Girls, but like if I mentioned Friday the 13th, most guys are like Amy Steele. And I think that's because she's the tomboy. Right. You know, she was the more tomboy. You know, the rest of them were, you know, and she's beautiful, but she mm-hmm. was a tomboy. And I think that it's funny, like, gay men seem to have the same touchstones where it's like when Batgirl, like, you know, was on her motorcycle in the beginning of the Batman old TV shows, are, gay guys were like, woohoo. Right. Batgirl's going to be on. Um, so I think the Final Girl, just the kind of the metaphor of, of of you know somebody who wasn't popular who didn't quite fit in kind of being the one who saved everybody obviously struck a chord and i think that's interesting because you and i have done panels together at different conventions where we have had this discussion and it comes up often where this draw to horror often is that outsider status it is the genre of outsiders and do you think that there is a direct correlation to the queer relationship with the genre because of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, and it's interesting because there's, uh, there, I think horror crosses so many demographics, it's, it's ridiculous, but, you know, when I lived in um, New York and, and you know, I lived in West Hollywood, or when I go to horror movies in LA, it's like, there's a huge gay audience, you know, for right. any horror film. And I think that, you know, another thing about horror films are that life is so scary that horror films like, kind of give you like this safe communal space to re- kind of release all of that fear. And, you know, I think that, it, you know, I think gay people, you know, we're constantly living in fear, unfortunately. Like, no matter how. I, I was talking to somebody the other day who lives in Indianapolis, and I was talking about how, you know, and, you know, I've lived in New York and LA, so I, I definitely, even though 
you know, I've, you know, had some, you know, gay bashing issues and my fr- I've had friends who were like attacked and stuff like that. You kind of forget about, you're, you think, oh, we've come so far. And, you know, my friend in Indianapolis, and it's a big city. And he's like, you know, he had to pull his daughter out of school because she came out and she got beat up every day and somebody pushed her down a flight of stairs. And, you know, you forget that when we live in the bubbles of the big city, even though we still know tangentially that there's that undercurrent of fear, um, that it's still really bad in a lot of places in, in the United States, you know. Absolutely. And do you think that these movies help people who are may- maybe suffering these scenarios? I think it helps you get some of that fear out. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel it does. I mean, I think it's very therapeutic. And, you know, it, my type of horror film is, that, you know, I watch the kind of horror films I think that are kind of, I mean, I watch any horror film, but I don't right. really care for the, um, I love the first Saw, but I don't really care for when the movie's, gets to a point when it loses kind of the story and it's just about torturing people like right. I don't really because I hate real life violence of course um, well, you should you'd be surprised some friends of mine are like no I'm kidding yeah. um, <laughs> there's there's some crazy people out there that probably don't um, abhor real life violence but I do and um, yeah but I love going to the theater and hearing people yell and jump and it's just as fun as going to a comedy and say, you know laughing with people like it's I love experiencing that well, I think Wes Craven once said that we don't go to see horror movies for fear. We go to see them for release. Yeah. And uh, what I think is interesting about pointing out the difference between Saw and the sequels is that there's still kind of a social construct to what's going on in the first Saw. There's right. a element of uh, responsibility. And I think that there is kind of delineation between um, gore for gore's sake mm-hmm. and gore in a movie that maybe has more going on. Right. Uh, do you as a creator feel some social responsibility when you're creating a script? I know uh, directorially recently you did a music video that was about gay conversion. Right. And also with The Good Samaritan, which was a short that you directed and wrote as well, uh, that starred Rain Wilson. Um, you really took on kind of the personal responsibility of of people as a community right. uh, when you're approaching something what level of responsibility do you feel to address social issues especially as uh, a queer person or a person of color in your work um, I, I, well, f- I try to find more concepts that I think are universal mm-hmm. um, when I'm writing stuff so that's like with Final Destination everybody's afraid of death right um, you know, with Good Samaritan, it definitely is a, you know, thematically, it's about some people who witness a person getting assaulted and don't help, and then they're outed, all the witnesses are outed and start dying, and you're not sure if it's supernatural or a killer who's after them. So I did a short, and we're, we're getting ready to do a feature version of that. Um, and that was very much based on the Kitty Genovese story out of um, out of New York, and that's a story struck with me. And I think that's what the great thing about horror is you can't explore themes without getting preachy. Like, I think Get Out, if it doesn't get nominated for some... Academy Award stuff this year, then I am going to get angry, and of course that means that something will happen. I don't know, but um, <laughs> you can you can you can have horror stories that have like subtext to them um, without taking away from the fr- fun of the genre. Um, so that's why I think like the first Saw was great, and I think the first Hostel was actually great because it was the theme of the first Hostel was very much about you know our attitudes when we go overseas. It's like we go overseas and we expect everybody to speak English and understand us and do what we say and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it kind of also took the the stereotype of, you know, women being tortured and, you know, we put men in that place um, and the men were victimized. And it wasn't to, like, you know, 
kick down men. It was just to kind of subvert the genre. So I thought the first one was actually really good. And then the second one was pretty much everything that was that the antithesis of the first one was like, let's get women naked and torture them. And it's like, okay, sure. I think you missed your. You missed what really made your first one special. Well, it's interesting, too, because when you chart the trajectory of the Saw and Hostile generation, it is a reflection of what was going on in the media at the time. Yeah. That was at the height of the Bush administration. Torture was very much in the news. Uh, and I think that what's so fascinating is those movies, whether people realized it at the time or not, were serving as great commentary. Right. But then as we do with sequels, uh, we sort of lost the commentary and got interested in the money. The format, right. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. yeah. So I try to, you know, just, I, I try to be very mindful. And again, a lot of stuff changes. That's why I'm moving more into directing, too, because a lot of stuff changes from page to, to screen. So people right. don't realize, you know, how much. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm very mindful of, of trying to make sure that, you know, I include some characters of color. I incre- include women. I've tried to include gay and lesbian characters. They sometimes they somehow seem to always get, you know, washed out of out of the movies, which right. which really annoys me. Um, but which I'm, you know, back, you know, 10 years ago, I was much more, um, you know, co- willing to compromise on that. But um, especially as of recently with what's going on in the world, like any of my future projects with gay and lesbian characters, like, they're not being changed, so. And I think, you know, it's interesting because through this discussion you mentioned, you know, the draw to Amy Steele as a tomboy or, you know, the the sort of, you talk about Get Out and, and representation of issues that have not often been focused on on screen. And I, I think for a lot of people who exist in a queer or minority space, uh, we gravitate towards movies that have this sense of otherness because even before maybe we know who we are, we see that otherness yeah. and identify with it. And something that I'm really interested in is when you grow up watching these movies or looking for yourself in, in art, what for you, if at all, do you feel was the first time that you saw yourself represented in film? Um, it's so funny because it's it's almost like the it's it's almost like independent gay theater. It's like because when I lived in New York, there was all this like not theater but film. Like you know, we just go out and see anything because we we're like so desperate for any kind of representation. I mean, I always say it was really sad if I think about it. Like growing up, like the only people that were like even gay role models are people that I didn't know were gay till they died of AIDS, like Rock Hudson or you know. Paul Lind or is it Paul Lind? Yeah, yeah, Paul yeah. And, I don't um, know that Paul Lind died of AIDS. He didn't die of AIDS. Yeah, yeah. No, he he just died. Yes, um, of, of sarcasm. Norm, of sarcasm. <laughs> um, you know, but like all these, you know, stars after the fact. So I didn't, I didn't really actually have any kind of role models growing up. You know, Liberace. I mean, come on, it was like <laughs> um, he fought tooth and nail to. Uh, to say that he wasn't gay. I know. He would sue people. Most of people, you know, that's, that's, anyway, that's, you know, so I, I think, you know, but I was also a very crafty kid, but I, I feel awful saying this, but when I was very young, I mean, I knew that I was gay from like, you know, as far back as I can remember. And, um, I actually, um, stole a little money from my mom, um, in Kentucky and, and found the address for the Oscar Wilde bookstore in New York and ordered, Another country in Maurice, which oh, were wow. which were you know two really wonderful um, English gay films, and so 
I watched those movies and I just I want first of all I wanted to move to England because I thought it was all just like beautiful like boarding schools with like cute boys in little uniforms that spoke very clever. Sure. Um, but it's um, not. It's not, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah, I've, 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 yeah, it's not. But but you Grant been... Carey was, you know, back in the, they're still hot, but back in the day, in those movies, they're just oh, you know, Rupert Everett, peak and, Rupert Everett, yeah, yeah, yeah peak all of them. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I I knew that I was so th- those were especially in Maurice that character. I think they say in English it's Morris actually, which that was my British friends pick on me for calling it Maurice, <laughs> but um, that was the first character I identified with as a young person. Uh, the first person I identified with in a horror film was, was Jesse, obviously, in, in, in Nightmare 2, which was hysterical that they have, you know, up until maybe five years ago, they were like, well, you don't know where that gay subtext was. What are you talking about? You're just making shit up. It's that, you know. Well, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about Nightmare 2, though, because I think as gay men, we see it. It's in front of us. Yeah. When you watch that movie, that is not just a gay movie. It is like the gayest the movie. The gayest movie ever, yeah. But, you know, Jack Shoulder, who was the director of that film, like you said, it maintained for a very long time that he didn't see it at all. And when that movie was made in the mid-80s, when people were very much ignoring our community on a massive scale, uh, it wasn't even part of the conversation. Like now yeah. when you open Newsweek, you know, the Speaker of the House throws shade. They're using drag terms. They're using right. things that they heard on RuPaul's Drag Race. Gay isn't in the, the zeitgeist now. Yeah. But it wasn't then. And so it's really interesting to see and think about the social context context of people in the Midwest going to see Nightmare on Elm Street 2, right. watching that kid walk into a leather bar I know. and sort of just disavowing, like, oh, it must be a bar for bikers. Or like, they, they made excuses because that's just not what their lives were. Right. And I think that's really, my favorite part about that whole franchise is, uh, that's Bob Shea's cameo in the movie. I love Bob. I know. I was going to say Bob is so funny. It's like he's he, he's the he's the leather daddy serving <laughs> drinks at the bar. No, um. <laughs> you'd think that if Bob Shea had that kind of awareness. I don't know. I know that Bob Shea is gay friendly, but I think that like in 1980, whenever that came out, uh, I think as head of studio, and they said, you know, your one cameo right now in this franchise is going to be the leather daddy at the bar. Do you think that would have been the, the one he would, would have taken? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. That's Bob. <laughs> Bob, Bob didn't care. Um, and the, but the funny thing is, as, as a Nightmare fan, I hated that movie because I saw the first one, like, in the second run theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw it, like, right before it came out on DVD. And then this... So, I mean, the first one was, like, ter- you know, terrifying. Right. And then the second one was, like, comedic. And so I was, I could, I was so mad at the movie because I'm like, why, why is Freddy running around at a party? And, what, you know, what's that fucking parakeet blowing up? And what, what you know, uh, so as a fan of the first one, I hated it the first time I saw it because this first movie had set such a high bar right. of terror for me that the second one was played more for laughs. And so when they got, got the third one, they brought Nancy back. And I'm like, all right, now we're back. And, but now I can go back and watch the movie and really appreciate it, you know, as its own thing um it's such an interesting entry in kind of the queer canon as well as just the nightmare canon it is it's it is the queer kid of that franchise i think that that's what's really interesting about it is not only is the movie just gay it it feels like if all of those movies are siblings it's the gay it's the the it's the gay it's the gay kid yeah uh now i was gonna wait until a bit later because i know that you are a very professed uh an extreme fan of nightmare on elm street and i was gonna ask you a little bit about that can you ever shut up about that movie i know ever it's no but i think (laughs) I think it's great. Uh, and uh, I do want to know, 
of the sequels, do you, what? Which is your favorite? Um, it's it, it's really weird because um, I always feel like I have to justify it. Um, I like the fourth one because and and it's because it, I think stylistically it's just shot beautifully and right. it's and it gets back to the scary, creepy like stylistic stuff. Um, so people are usually surprised that I don't say part three. The only reason part three isn't my favorite is because a they spoiler. They kill Nancy. What the fuck? Um, actually, no. Wes Craven's New Nightmare is actually my favorite. Let me, oh, well, let, me good. let me start that one. Right. But part four is just done so well um, as far as the direct sequels go. Right. Um, and just part three, because I'm such a big comic book fan, like, and I re- read comic books. So when I read the concept of it, I got my expectations very high for, for what that movie was going to be. And, and I love it, but I just didn't like that they just kind of gave every character, like, a set piece and then they died. And a set piece and they died. And right. then they kill Nancy. I'm like... I hate you guys, but I, I did enjoy the third one. Um, well, t- I have two points. The first, I'll say, uh, are you ready for this, Jeffrey Reddick? This is why you were the perfect first guest because my favorite sequel is Part Four as well. Yeah. I've always loved Part Four. I think it might be because it was the first one that I saw, uh, but it also had it was it was the Nightmare on Elm Street for the MTV generation. It, right. it had just you're right stylistically was wonderful. I love the soundtrack. It's one of my favorite yeah. soundtracks. And that moment at the end when Alice. Uh, Goes full montage, badass fight yeah. back. Every I've seen it in the theater a few times since at revival screenings, and people go crazy. Yeah. I didn't uh, like that they killed the Dream Warriors off at the beginning. That was that annoyed me. But um, but it's interesting that you make the point about part three because uh, I recently had a conversation with uh, Christopher Rice, the novelist, yeah. and he's a big Nightmare on Elm Street uh, fan too, and he was maintaining that Nightmare Three is inappropriately named because. They're not really warriors because they're established and then immediately killed. There's no formidable right. like meeting on the field of battle. Yeah. Uh, I love the scene in part three though, where uh, she goes to collect John Saxon and he could not be bothered. Like that's, that's, that's <laughs> one of my fa- one of my favorite exchanges in the history of cinema. Dad, we have to talk about Fred Krueger. It was nice seeing it, Nancy. It's like, <laughs> and I feel like that was also just John being like, "Let's get out of here. Let's let's cut." <laughs> uh, so you mentioned Bob Shea earlier, and while we're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, I think that it's. Uh, uh, a semi-well-known fact about your biography that you oh, yeah. early on uh, had written was it a treatment or a spec script? A for- treatment, yeah. I didn't even know. It. I was like four, a fourteen-year-old hillbilly. I didn't even know what spec scripts were. I wrote it. <laughs> I wrote a treatment for like a, a prequel for Nightmare on Elm Street, and um, I f- found out you know the name of the company, and I mailed it to Bob Shea, and yeah, he sent it back to me and just said, "We, don't, I'm sorry, we don't take unsolicited material." So I had to like look up what unsolicited meant because I was only fourteen. <laughs> um, and then I wrote him back, and I was like, "You know, listen, sir, I spent three dollars on your projects, and I've seen three of your movies, so I think you can take five minutes to read my story." Wow. And um, I know I was a fucking ballsy little fourteen year old. I wish I, I still wish I had those balls. <laughs> um, and he wrote me back, and he. he I still remember Laura. He goes, thank you for your aggressive introduction. Um, and you're taking the time to do this. And he actually encouraged me. He's like, you know, you have a great imagination, very fertile story, but, you know, you need to learn structure and stuff like that. So I ended up becoming pen pals with him and his assistant, Joy Mann, um, from age 14 to 19. And then I, when I was 19, I went to New York to study acting and uh, got an internship at New Line. So um, him and him responding to me was like, you know, obviously a huge part of my life as a, as is Nightmare on Elm Street and also Joy Mann who was such, like just a mentor to me from 14 to 19 she always would send me scripts and tchotchkes and she taught me what tchotchkes meant because I didn't know because I was in Kentucky we never never had tchotchkes, never had tchotchkes in Kentucky <laughs> um, so so yeah Nightmare on Elm Street and Bob Shea and Joy and just New Line in general is always going to be kind of just part of my DNA um, 
So here's the question. Mm -hmm. You're 14, you send a treatment for what you envision to be the prequel to Nightmare on Elm Street to Bob Shea. Mm -hmm. Now here you are, years later, an established and celebrated filmmaker with a major franchise of your own, to your credit, many other films and uh, novels and works that you've done. Uh, If you could sit down now and make the Jeffrey Reddick Nightmare on Elm Street movie, what's that look like? Um, I would, I would redo Dream Warriors. I would, that's what I, I would redo Dream Warriors. I actually pitched, um, a Freddy versus Jason story that I still love. And, um, you know, it brought in like Tina, the girl with telekinesis from Friday the 13th and had the Jacob grown up as a teenager and, but still had the dream master and some other, uh, some new characters. And it was going to be a real battle. And, um, I pitched it a new line was just like, ah, oh, it's too dark. I'm like it's friggin' Jason versus Freddy. What do you mean it's too dark? Um, so I'd love, to, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to redo like I'd love to just redo a Dream Warriors movie and, and have Heather Langenkamp be in it, have Robert England be in it, um, and have like Chris Rice said, have some really badass fighting with the Dream Warriors against Freddy. Yeah, Dream Warriors should have been like the X Men. Yeah, of the, the they couldn't afford franchise. to. I mean, in in all you know, because I know Wes's original version was was darker and filthier. <laughs> um, We're all about filthy on the show. Yeah. Um, but, you know, budget-wise, they can only afford to do so much. So I think, you know, they did, they did what they could with what they had. But it's right. just like, you know, in the age of reading comics, it, you know, you're, what you see in the comic books is so spectacular that when you, you couldn't match that back then, you can now. Like, I'm right. I'm actually surprised. I, I'm really surprised they haven't actually done a, a, a Nightmare, you know, Dream Warriors kind of reboot. Like, that would just seem like the easy with all the superhero movies out there that would just seem like the most logical thing well, to do with the franchise well new line if you're listening you just got a really cool pitch from the creator of final destination for this yeah. so yeah new line listen yeah <laughs> yeah we'll do that right after we get the final destination sequel <laughs> is there going to be you know what the funny thing is like we, Everybody kind of wants one, except I don't think this. I don't know if the studio is going to do one or not. Right. You know, they have they have other franchises that are cheaper to make right now. Mm-hmm. But as far as like fan base goes, and far as like other studios go, people are just like clamoring for it. Like I, I just get hit up, you know, multiple times a day, you know, for people asking about it from all over the world, and you know, other studios want to make it, and it's you know, it, it at some point it's going to happen because I mean. You know, it's ridiculous not to make another one. Right. You know, just because people really do want one, and I just say, I say, I don't say that like arrogantly. I'm just, it's part of. It's been a frustrating thing for me because people keep, you know, you see a lot of other franchises where they have like 15 sequels, right? And this one is like one where people are like all the time hounding about it. And um, you know, obviously, it would be great to like re kind of because death is like death can do anything so you don't have to really necessarily follow the exact same formula as the first one or the first bunch I think the last movie tied everything up really well right but um, you know death is you know death can do all kinds of shit so it's like there's it's kind of endless what you could do with 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 the franchise well with Final Destination being part of your DNA and something you think about often how frequently do you look at something and think this could kill me I don't really it's so funny I'm not really my brain isn't wired that way it's um <laughs> just because I'm 
I've again, I dissected horror films. I get, I still get scared, but it's mostly like if somebody throws a cat out of a corner and the sound gets really loud, I still jump like a twelve year old. Um, I was gonna say girl, but that just a twelve year old me actually sounds the same. Um, so, um, so um, now I forgot what your question was. Just the, the the intense Rube Goldberg nature of of the death. Oh, do I think death, about it? Yeah. Think, yeah. No, the funny. The funny thing is, I will. I went to um, to India uh, to promote Day of the Dead, and I landed there, and the f- the tag on my luggage was 180, which had never happened in my whole life because I've been waiting for it to happen so I could take so I could take a picture of it, but it never happened. So I went to India, that happened. I came back a week later, and there was in LA there was like a bus 180 that was headed to Colorado Avenue. So I. I caught the 180 part and then somebody else I posted about it and somebody else said well Colorado that's a John Denver you know so, and I was like oh crap I didn't even think about that and then there was like three like final destination things that like were just right in my face like within the span of a week and I was trying to like decipher what that meant like is it like you know I just took it to mean like I'm kind of on the right path you know work wise but um and then I came up with an idea that I thought, I thought was a great idea for a final destination and it turned out there was kind of a um there, there was like a unpublished book in the series of Final Destination books that I talked to the producer about it. He's like, kind of the same idea for that one. I'd never read the book actually, but um, I was like, damn it. You brought up something, uh, and maybe you've talked about this in interviews before. I, I've just uh, not heard you elaborate on it. There is a thread in the uh, original Final Destination about John Denver. What was that? Just because you grew up in Kentucky and liked his music, or the plane crash? No, that wasn't. The- that was actually uh, James Wong and Glenn Morgan. Um, they that was that was their touch on that, and it's funny because it, just for me creatively, like because that's what I always I do battle, and that's the only thing I, I when I write stuff like if I try not to, I'm very mindful of like real life tragedy. Like there were a couple of times when I've been offered writing assignments like based off of real life you know murders and but the kind of direction they wanted to go in was kind of gratuitous or whatever and I'm like I don't want to do that so I I actually would I would just personally feel weird like using like somebody's song who died in a plane crash right you know like just for me that just feels like kind of you know icky <laughs> so, right but that you know I mean it obviously was effective because you know that's another tie-in that's people aside from the Rube Goldberg stuff that's another tie-in that people will have is when they hear that song it makes them think of the movie so you know I can't fault anybody for that but just kind of me creatively I'm you know I know people got some people got it's so funny there was a there was actually a plane crash that happened the movie came out in 2000 I think the plane crash happened in like 99 or something like that very close to when the movie came out there was a plane crash Um, and I think they may have used footage from that but a lot of reviewers were actually thinking that we made the movie. Be, that was the idea behind the movie. And so they were like, how dare they exploit this real-life tragedy to make a movie? And I'm like, dude, that's not how – movies don't happen in, like, six no. months. Like, <laughs> Well, I know that a lot of horror fans are aware of this. But for some of our, our listeners in the queer space or people who are just discovering all of this for the first time uh, – the genesis of Final Destination goes back a little farther because you had written originally written the concept as a spec script for the X Files. Yeah, uh, I love that. There's kind of this this uh, through line in your career where you took things that you were very passionate about and wrote about them, and almost that sort of uh, not that spec scripts are fan fiction, but you know what I mean. You're yeah, passionate, no. passionate about yeah. that world, and it led to these great things. Uh, what? Was that initial interaction with the X Files team? Oh, I didn't. I didn't actually get it, get it to them. What, okay. I, what I what I did, but I did write it as a spec script because to get an agent, they usually want you to write 
a script of your own. They want to see your original writing, but then they want you to write something that's already on TV because they want to know that you can write in other character voices besides your own. Right. So the X-Files was really popular. So I, yeah, I, I, I wrote it as an X-Files spec, but um, I had a friend, Mark Kaufman, who worked in, at New Line, who was like, he read it. He's like, dude, this is a great idea. You should make this into a feature. Like, don't don't send that off to, like, the TV show. Right. So I never actually sent it to the X-Files. But the funny thing is James Wong and Glenn Morgan worked on the X-Files. Right. So, um, you know, when we, when we first did Final Destination, like, we, the first director we went to was Clyde Barker, and he passed on it. And then, you know, I was talking to Bob, and Bob's like, what do you think about James Wong and Glenn Morgan? I'm like, they're fucking awesome. They did, like, some of the best episodes of the X-Files. And they sure did. Millennium and all that stuff. So, you know, big fans of theirs, and, you know, really, was really excited to get them on board. Um and um, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it's kind of weird how it, kismically all that all, you know, started with an X Files idea, got the X Files guys on it, and you know, and the the movies are kind of funny because I worked on the first and second one, and then James and Glenn came back for the third one, and then Eric Bress and J. Mackie Gruber, who worked on the second one, came back for the fourth, or Eric Bress did for the fourth one, and then for the fifth one they kind of went with a whole new team. So it was very interesting because the first four were kind of all connected where they kind of kept flipping back and forth between all of us that's so funny i uh well just to kind of cap off the x-files question discussion Mm -hmm. i have to ask are you more of a Mulder or a scully um i am more of a Mulder. yeah so you want to believe well no no uh, yeah well Mulder believes that's true that's true um i think he believes like you know i mean i i definitely I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen anything, like, I haven't, the funny thing is, like, I, I've never seen, like, a ghost or anything. I mean, the only thing is, like, when my grandmother passed, um, not my biological grandmother, but I had a grandmother in, a woman in Florida who used to call us her grandkids, and we would call her grandma. And I, there was this one time where I felt her on my, touch my shoulder, and I saw her in the, uh, in the corner of my eye, and I just knew it was her. And it's not like I'm somebody that has this crazy imagination where I see, like, weird things. Um, and so I knew that that was her in the room with me, but that's kind of the only paranormal experience that I've had. But I have had a lot of like kismity things that kind of, and I don't look for it, but sometimes right. like with the final destination thing, like there were like, it was literally within the span of the week, like the 180 to Colorado. And there was one other thing, I can't remember what it was, but it was like so in my face that I'm like, you know, I'm onto something with this idea that I have is what is kind of what I took with it. Right. Um, but, you know, I do, I do obviously, I mean, I mean, the universe is so vast that there's that there's no way that we're the only life forms in it you know that just doesn't make any that just doesn't make any scientific sense like if you think about it um i'll agree with there's that. like billions and billions and millions of planets and solar systems and it, yeah, to think that we're the only life forms out there is kind of a little arrogant of us you know well what is humanity if not arrogant oh yes that is true um let's talk about your new film dead awake yeah yeah it's a tale of sleep paralysis sleep paralysis what was the genesis of that movie um you know i had some producers bring me some articles on it and um i just started doing some research and was fascinated because i didn't realize how prevalent it was um you know one in three you know people are going to suffer. no everybody they say everybody's actually going to suffer from it at least once in their lives um not necessarily the full-on hey there's something on your chest choking you but just the physical um aspect of it and so I was really attracted to the universal, you know, kind of theme of that as well. And, you know, it also gave me a chance to dive a little bit in the Nightmare on Elm Street world. There were some Nightmare on Elm Street – in the script, there were, like, some more kind of cool, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, fan, you know, 
kind of sequences. We weren't able to actually do it, you know, with with the budget that we had. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we just definitely decided to ground it more in reality after we kind of got everything together for it. Um, but it's, you know, it's a really fun project. We've got Joss and Donahue in it, uh, Lori Petty, Jesse Bradford from Swim Fan, who's awesome. Love Swim Fan. I know, everybody loves Swim Fan. <laughs> this audience definitely will appreciate Swim Fan. It's true. Um, I've wanted to do a Swim Fan musical for years. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like my secret dream. Oh, just my God. To boys and Speedos on stage doing, like, choreographed numbers. Well, if you, if you write it, I'm sure at least I can get Jesse to read it. <laughs> he can be the head coach. I am here for that. But, um... But no, it was a really, you know, it was a really fun project. And the, the great thing about it is um, it's, it, you know, it came out like 10, ten cities, but, you know, it's out on video now and, and DVD. And it'll be, you know, in, in the Walmart and other places like that in October. But, um, you know, we did really well internationally. Like it, we opened in some theatrical cities internationally. So it looks like we're going to be doing a sequel, which I'm really pumped about. And, you know, we'll be able to explore a lot more. There's a lot more we'll be able to do because once you kind of know what your parameters are as far as your budget then you can kind of like fashion a really cool story around it so um i've been talking to the director and producers and you know we have some really cool ideas to like you know because when everybody has sleep paralysis there's so many different things that they report seeing or things happening to them mm-hmm. um in, in the first movie we went solely with like the night hag which is you know this kind of haggard like creature that old woman that people saw you know, a lot of people report seeing choking them, and that's where the term haggard comes from. Oh, is in ancient times they thought this night hag was was choking you in your sleep. Um, you know, but there's also there's so many other like creatures and, and scary figures and things that people experience during sleep process. So, you know, I'm looking forward to really expanding on that world in the sequel. I uh, now I'm terrified to go <laughs> to bed. Um, but like most people of my generation, I stay up till four in the morning looking at Twitter. So uh, stupid Twitter, uh. <laughs> and and Facebook, but Twitter now. It's true. Well, it's so easy. And the thing is, is I'll start drifting off, and all of a sudden I will be looking at it again. That's a horror movie right there. Is how you can't stop. I know. I, I tweeted with you at like four in the morning. I know. I know. That. I, know. I know. And we don't do we don't do drugs, so it's not like we're it's up. It's true. Like, we're not like up like you know. No offense to people who do drugs. Um, they're bad for you. You should stop. But, um, yeah, it's not like we're. Uh, yeah, it's so funny because yeah, you're up that late. Um, and it's people are like, hey, are you partying? I'm like, no, I'm just watching bad horror movies and tweeting stupid stuff. It's true. Do you have do you have a late night go-to watch? Do you have a, a, a movie that you're like, it's 4 a.m. and I'm not going to bed yet, or this I'm going to watch cartoons, or this is my staple movie? Um, I'll, I flip through, you know, like like last night it was Dead and Buried. You know, I hadn't seen that one in a while, and, and you know, the night before that it was like high tension, you know, so what I'll just like scroll through the channels and see what new thing is on HBO or Shudder, you right. know, or, or whatever, you know, whatever, and I'll just watch something I haven't seen in a while. High Tension, a, a decidedly queer horror film, bringing us back yeah. full circle to the nature of the I didn't the like it. Yeah, it's so funny because I liked the movie as a movie, but that it was funny because I, I had a discussion where a friend of mine pitched me a story yesterday that, it, that he's all excited about, and I'm like, dude, you can't make that movie. Like, I'm not going to say what the plot is, but it's just like, you just can't make that movie. Um, he's like, why? A gay guy wrote it. I'm like, I don't care. It's like really... There's no, it's it's offensive, and with high tension, it's not. I wouldn't even say high tension like is offensive in a way, but at the spoiler, there's going to be a spoiler. So if you're listening and you haven't seen it, you don't want to cover your ears for five seconds or ten seconds, you know. But basically, the plot turns out to be this crazy lesbian who's obsessed with her best friend and murders her best friend's family and kidnaps her, and you know, 
can't deal with it so much that she creates a f- another personality. Who's like a rosacea Johnny Cash. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I didn't like it for two reasons. One, it's like, you know, she's clearly a crazy lesbian because at the end it's like, love me. And she's trying to kiss the girl who's all bloody. And she, again, she's murdered her whole family, including her little brother. But um, when th- it doesn't track. Like, no. I don't know. I You know, I read somewhere that they had added that in as a twist at the end. But it does, it just, it had to be part of the production because of the way the whole scene on the highway and stuff where they're kissing and like, so, but it doesn't track. There's like physically no way that that movie could happen. Well, how's she in the back of the car being chased by a car that she's also driving? Right, right. All that stuff. Like there's so much of that stuff like that. What's funny, I've seen High Tension twice. And yeah. I actually get my uh, night owl is um, earnestly. My mother likes to stay up late. Like, my dad will go to bed at 10, and she'll she'll watch the late show. Or I guess we don't have that anymore with, with digital. It's right. all whatever's just on. But uh, I was visiting them for the holidays a few years ago, and I watched High Tension with her. Hmm. All, you know, a great movie to watch <laughs> with your mother. Uh, and I have never seen someone provide notes with the severity uh, of a studio executive like my mom did at the end of that film. She was just like, here's some things that don't track for me. Boom, boom, right. boom, boom. Right. She, uh, she's ready to walk in a room, I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't, and I, you know, I don't think every representation of, of, you know, gay and lesbian, you know, transgender, bisexual, you know, queer, all those, I don't think that they, they have to be positive. Like, I don't think that that's, a goal. I think you just have to be mindful of, of the story that you're telling because, like with with that one again, it was it was just the movie was so over the top violent anyway. And again, you're slaughtering a whole family and then you know right. dragging this girl around you know in the back of your truck. You know, having crazy lesbian at the time was like okay, that's kind of because there is a segment. This is what always cracks me up. Like there's the American Family Association, which is the most ridiculous stupid organization that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> they, they Literally, I mean, they, they, they protest anything that has a... Like, my thing is the only gay character they want to see on TV is one who is so tortured by the fact that they're awfully, evilly, sinfully gay that they finally get converted to being straight and find Jesus. That's the only gay person they want to see. Right. If there's a show with just a gay guy who's just gay, doesn't do anything but just as gay... They're like they're protesting it um, right. as promoting the gay agenda and blah, blah blah. They're just I just really loathe them, and it's so funny how you know they ugh, they just irk me so much because it's like literally if a gay guy just walks by a camera, they're like protesting. It's like come on, people, like we exist. You can't erase us. I know a lot of countries try to pretend that we don't exist, but in this country, you can't erase us from right. reality because we do exist, and you know you don't have to. Yeah, if you don't like us, then that's your problem. I mean, there are people that don't like me because I'm biracial, you know, like, fuck you. Right. There are people that don't like me because I'm not a Christian and I'm a Baha'i. Fuck you, too. <laughs> you know, there are people that don't like me for many reasons. They People don't like me for writing Day of the Dead. I won't say fuck you on that one, but there is a story behind that. Um, <laughs> We're here to take a stance today on Day Fulfilled. Uh, I, no, I think that there is a lot of ground that has been covered in the last few decades. We've advanced, but we still have so much farther to go. And I don't have the exact numbers, and I'm sure that a listener out there in social media land will will hit us up with this, as they do. Um, But I read a report recently that lesbian representation almost uh, across the board has on on network television it's always tortured relationships that were like someone dies like that's their plot point right. they can't have a, a functioning relationship because mainstream america can't handle it it's like the girlfriend is introduced to be killed so that the other girl can be tortured right uh, 
And there are shows, but I will say there are shows like Arrow. I mean, not Arrow, Supergirl. Like Supergirl's sister came out as a lesbian, and at first, I mean, she was she wasn't tortured by it. It's just she had a hard time accepting it. Right. And the girl was like, well, I'm not going to stick around if you, you know, I can't, I'm out and I can't deal with this. And they have a very loving, healthy relationship now. So it is interesting, like, it, you know, that's one, you know, so obviously that, that doesn't a show, you know, that doesn't a trend make. But, you know, that show has a really, a lot of the CW shows have like really, there's a lesbian relationship on the, um, the originals. There's a lesbian couple on that. And, um, yeah, they they started off they started off torturing one of them was a vampire and she started torturing the other person because she needed her special blood, um, but then they fell in love and now they're like you know ready to die for each other. So it As is you do yeah. So there's some the, the TV's gotten great you know like you know Shonda Rhimes you know God bless her you know for just racial equality and gender equality and for you know presenting all all aspects of humanity including gay and lesbian characters and. Um, she's done a really good job with, you know, I think representation on screen of multifaceted, you know. Absolutely. Of course, you reference Supergirl. Greg Berlanti is an out gay man. Yeah. We were seeing some really great and diverse uh, showrunners right now, which yeah. is helping the TV landscape. And I feel like movies are just kind of racing to catch up, if at they're all. They're not racing, yeah. They're yeah, kind they're of like, plotting. they're like, well, we could catch up, but it might be bad for business, so we, yeah. Well, um, Sort of to wrap some things up, we talked a little bit about queer representation, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm wondering if there is a queer horror film or just queer movie that you recommend to listeners. What are some things that you are, have seen recently that you like? Um, I'm trying to think. Re- I mean, it doesn't have to be recent if you yeah, want to throw back. Yeah, and get- like no, you know, it's so funny because um, I can tell you kind of some iconic gay films that I saw again I think Maurice is a must kind of see it's a Merchant Ivory movie so it's the first like you know Merchant Ivory gay movie and it's it's so you could completely remake that today and and have the same exact story and it, it would still be relevant it's um, just so sad how far we've come and yet how far we haven't come right um, but I saw uh, Todd Haynes Poison when I was young and that movie like just it's very I mean it's not for everybody right um, it's like three segments and each segment's a different kind of story but um there's a there's just a really hot scene in prison, but that's awful to say. But it's it's a movie, right? Um, the Fourth Man is a is a foreign film that I'm mystery thriller that I thought was very very interesting um, with a kind of a, a a man who kind of seduced this other guy in, in the film and the, the crazy lady that was um, in between them. And um, what are some fun gay films like? Now I'm asking, like I don't know, like because no, when I grew up, it's like literally, like in New York, we would, I would go see anything like that, Greg Araki, like The Living End, like anything that had like gay stuff in it, I would go see because we were, again, I was just so desperate for it. But um, I loved Nowhere. Speaking of Greg Araki, yeah, that movie was yeah fabulous. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it was very yeah, and um, but um, really, I mean, you know, really good gay stories are hard to. They're hard to come by. Like, you know, I know a lot of... And I'm just blanking because sometimes when I get questions like that, I, I, my brain starts, like, freezing. Right. So some of my gay f- friend, filmmaker friends are going to be, what the hell? But, you know, <laughs> I, enjoy, I enjoyed Hellbent, you know. Um, right. You know, that was the first, like, you know, gay slasher film. Right, directed by Paul pa- Etheridge. By Paul Etheridge. Um, uh, there's a great scene in Hellbent that I still think... I'm like, with the glass? Yeah, eye. with the glass eye. I, yeah, one of the, I have eye things. Like, it's like, it, it weirds me out when people do eye stuff. So yeah. a lot of Italian horror kind of... 
runs rampant for me, but that scene where the, the knife tip hits his glass eye and you hear the scratch. Yeah, yeah, Ugh. yeah. That was a great movie. That was done for, like, next to nothing. And I think, you know, Paul did a great job on that. No, he's, really he's a good friend of mine. He's a really talented filmmaker. Um, but, yeah, like, it's... You know, you would think, like, a movie like Brokeback Mountain comes out and people would, you know, kind of get out, out of their mentality of, oh, those kind of movies don't do well. And it's like, no, they don't. They still don't. And then it's like, get out comes out and you're like okay well maybe they'll change their mind that you can have a black lead in the film right and it will still do well um no it won't and then you know girls trip comes out with all black women and does like 30 some million dollars opening weekend it's like all right people you guys thought it would do 18 and it's like right a huge hit so how many times do we have to beat your head to see that people people want to go see good stories like I, and that's a that's a thing i think that i try to be careful of like because i think a lot of gay filmmakers we fall into a trap of because we don't come out till we're later in life a lot of us don't i mean right. i i was out from like again the, the womb but um <laughs> I, I i find like a lot of gay films seem a little bit seem a little masturbatory where it's like they're they're like okay i'm like a 40 year old man and i'm writing a movie about you know the nerd the gay nerd in high school who finally wins over the secret gay jock and stuff you know like that that kind of plot line right and we've seen we've it seen it times, we've seen it yeah. so many times and it's like I'm glad you're coming out, but like, you know, like, like it's 2017. If, yeah, we're if you're out. gonna tell us, yeah. if you're gonna tell a story, like, 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 you know, I, like, and I haven't told that story myself. Like, right. with me, you know, what I do is I just try to write character. Like, well, in T- Tamara's a prime example, actually. Like, the lead in Tamara was a lesbian in my script, mm-hmm. and that's why when you see the finished film, her and the the Jesse, the guy that you would think are, are they're gonna hook up, that they never hook up, is because she was a lesbian. And there was a whole subplot where her parents, like Tamara, puts a spell on her parents, and her parents come to kill her, which is every gay person's kind of worst fear that your family's going to reject you. Um, and it was, you know, she was a really great character. She still is a great character, but they, they're like, well, we can't afford the parents because we're, our budget, so we need to just strip that whole subplot out. I'm like, okay. And then there's a scene. These are all spoilers. But with Tamara, I wanted to write the trashy, fun, and then trashy in a good way, but I right. wanted to write... Like the fun, like tr- everything I've wanted to see in a movie, like hot villainous with, with like one liners that you're going to quote, like gay stuff and dis everything. So there's a scene where, you know, they it's kind of Carrie with a you know a modern Carrie where these kids pull a prank on a girl who's into witchcraft and they accidentally kill her, right? Cover it up. She comes, she's like kind of an ugly duckling at the beginning. Jenna Dewan plays her, um, and she comes back to school. You know that Monday, like is this sexy smoking hot chick who knows all the sins of all the kids that killed her. Right. So she goes after them and they can't go to the cops and say, Hey, we killed this girl this weekend and now she's after us. Um, so she's got her eye on her teacher and there are the two, the two, two asshole jock guys. Like they've had a history of like date raping girls. Right. So she puts a spell on them and in the script, she makes one, she makes the guy rape the other guy and nobody batted an eye all the way through. We're shooting until the day before they were shooting the scene. And the director calls and says, well, how should we shoot this scene? I'm like, well, it's not a sex scene. Like, it's a rape scene, so it should be, like, you would shoot any kind of rape scene. Like, it's not supposed to be, like, fun to watch. Like, right. Like, you know. And then I see the footage, and it freaking... It's like, she puts a spell on him, and then they kiss each other, and they fall out of frame. And then the girlfriend is in the script is supposed to pull come in and pull the sheet back and see the, her boyfriend, like, raping this other guy. And now she pulls the sheet back, and they're kissing... And they've got their clothes on under the covers. They fully covered themselves sure. with their, all their clothes on because yeah. you know most people do that. Yeah. And I was like livid because then it changes the whole meaning of the script where people are like, "Oh, so she made them gay because they rape girls." I'm like, "That's no. not a, that's not what it was at all." And 
and you know, it was funny because I was talking. You know, it's fine. You know, I was talking to one of the actors, and and I and I and, um, he was somehow him and the other guy had to do do shots and stuff before that scene. I'm like, I said, you guys just kissed. I'm like, do you have to do shots if you if you make out with an ugly girl in a movie? And they're like, and I will to his credit, he goes, I never had to make out with an ugly girl in a movie. I was like, <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Now later, you released Tamara as a novel. Mm-hmm. Were I you? Wrote, yeah, I co-wrote that with my friend uh, uh, John Doyle, who's great, great writer. So yeah. And were you able to restore the things that were yeah. excised? Yeah, and that's why I did that actually, is right. because I wanted to. Um, and I, 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 you know, the funny thing is in. Because it, it's such a hard business to work in, you always have to be grateful. Right. And so, even though things don't go as planned, at some point you you accept it and you you know and and you know I I love Tamara because at, at its heart, you know what it turned out to be is like a really fun movie for like you know teenagers and tweens. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's not the hard R movie that I wanted, but it turned out to be a really fun. Like it's got a great following, and uh, Jenna Dewan's awesome in it, and um, adore her. And it's you know it's a it's a fun movie. Um, I got off track again. Oh, it's, I, I always we, we're, we're, we just we just mentioned the novel was able to the kind novel, of restore right, some you. of the things. So, but so the reason I wanted to, to do that was just to get the story out there because there were, there were so many reviews, and, and I shouldn't listen to so much reviews. But when it's when it's reviews about stuff that weren't in the script, it, at some point it starts to get on your nerves a little bit, and you feel like um, you know. And so the, everybody was somehow kind of like the movie played it safe, or like well. It felt like they were going to go here or there and didn't do it, and it's like, well, we the script went there, right? You know, and it just got changed in the development process. So, the nature of the beast. Yeah. Well, it's uh, wild to think how quick our time goes here. Uh, oh, wow. we're almost ready to travel onward to to the next to the next gay to the next. Well, I was going to say gra- the, grave, but either way, oh, um, <laughs> the next gay grave. <laughs> uh, so, you know, listeners, please check out Final Destination and Tamara and Dead Awake now on VOD. Yeah. Uh, and with all of this wonderful back catalog that Jeffrey has provided that you can be viewing from here to Halloween, I have to ask what's next? What's coming next? What's up? Um, well, Superstition is the next project that we have, um, and it's basically. It's going to be the first, um, you know, we're creating a whole universe based around superstitions. And the first one um, is about the superstition deaths happen in threes. And it's set on a campus where two people have died. So somebody starts a Deadpool mm-hmm. to figure out who the third person is. And um, obviously there's a, the, a real killer behind the Deadpool who starts going after the characters. And I'm really excited about the movie for a couple of reasons. It's my first straight up slasher film. Um and it's Lionsgate's putting it out, but it's also the first, you know the film is like ninety percent African American and Latino actors and actresses, and we have awesome. it, and that's just something I've been fighting for diversity in my horror films, and it's like, you know, it's just I've kept keep hearing the same thing. They don't, it doesn't sell overseas, so we can't do it, and and, and it's just bullshit. So, um, you know, and it, the movie's not about race, like it's just a really good slasher film. I said, you know, I just tell people it's like, but instead of following like the pretty white kids and their one black friend or their one Latino friend were actually following the pretty black and Latino kids and their two white friends, you know, <laughs> like that's just what, what it is. So, right. um, and then we're going to follow that up with bloody Mary. Um, and then a movie about, um, a gin, you know, rub the lamp and you get three wishes. So we're creating this whole universe of superstition movies. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I have a film called the shift that I EP that, that shot in Indianapolis and, um, that's going to be coming out. It's a sci-fi, um, thriller about these college kids who go on a ride along with a cop and uncover a alien invasion in Indianapolis. And, um, 
you know, we're, the Good Samaritan feature we're working on right now. So hopefully that'll be shooting, hopefully then the fall or early next year. Um, I've got a horror film with Monique called oh, The wow. Horror Show. I know that um, hopefully we'll be directing in the in the fall or. Uh, well, we can't. I can't do Good Samaritan and them. One of them, one of them, hopefully in the fall. One of them in the winter or next, right. or you know, next year. So, um, and it has some TV projects out there, you know, that are that are making the rounds as well. So, um, yeah, I'm just really excited. I'm really excited. Well, it sounds like a lot, and uh, that's so awesome. And thank I'm you. Excited to see all of it. And Jeffrey, thank you for being our first guest. Oh, thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, you can follow me on the Twitter if you want. Yes. I, Where can they find it's you? Jeffrey A. Reddick, R E D D I C K. And um, Twitter's just easier because I, Facebook, I, I've reached my five thousand friend limit. I always hate saying that because I feel like it's <laughs> douchebaggy. But um, I've reached my limit of five thousand people. Um, and on Instagram, it's so funny because I don't do enough interesting stuff to like record myself all the time. Right. So I don't really do much on Instagram. Um, you know, I have never recorded an Instagram story. I'll watch people's. It feels very voyeuristic. Like I enjoy like seeing people like having a bagel or something, but I don't know like I'm never going to make one of those videos. Yet. But that's how you get followers. It's so funny because yeah. if you want followers, you really, especially on Instagram, like Twitter, right. Twitter is great because you can it's more interactive with people like so people will just see a hashtag and you right. know and if, especially if you write anything about anything semi-controversial like people will start like attacking you which is fun yes um <laughs> but on instagram you really have to you know like once we start shooting again you know i'll probably start doing more instagram stuff from set you know right. which will be interesting but you know me like walking to starbucks and sitting there and writing is not exciting you know yeah i think people don't realize how unglamorous it is to yeah. be a screenwriter most of the time yeah. like, and also to be in a gay like it's yeah. always, i used to have the gay lifestyle it's like yeah um my gay lifestyle is getting up making breakfast going to the coffee shop going to a movie coming home and watching my programs on tv right like my, that's my that's my lifestyle my gay agenda is just not drinking the whole pot of coffee like i have right. to like stop myself yeah Otherwise, I'll be talking to you on Twitter at 4 right. <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you so much. Thank you for having uh, me. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for the first episode and for bearing with us as we work out our kinks. But we're not here to kink shame on Dead for Filth. Uh, we're here to kink celebrate. Uh, I am your host, Michael Verratti, and I am with you always in gore and glam. Until next week, goodbye and good luck.